this coming Monday evening on PBS stations across the country, including Channel 10 in Milwaukee, uh, the public can view an absolutely marvelous film, which is titled American Oz, The True Wizard Behind the Curtain. And uh, I probably don't have to explain that title to anybody. Uh, when you hear the word Oz, American Oz and Wizard and so on, you know that we are talking about uh, L. Frank Baum and the wonderful Wizard of Oz, the book that got everything started and uh, that created, in a sense, uh, a, a sprawling and impressive franchise uh, that has uh, made its way into the hearts and lives of, of children of all ages. And a lot of us who have not been children for a long time still really love this work and, uh, and much that has sprung from it. It turns out that the life of, of L. Frank Baum was complicated. In fact, at some point in the film that we're talking about, uh, Mr. Baum is called a complicated person with a complicated story. And so uh, that story can only be adequately told uh, in a film that does not rush through the story. And so I am so glad that we can talk about this film, American Oz, The True Wizard Behind the Curtain, which airs this coming Monday night on the PBS series American Experience. Uh, at the helm, write, writing and directing and producing this film, Randall McLowry and Tracy Heather Strain, who uh, together have been making films for many, many years uh, with their own company called The Film Posse. They have done a number of works for American Experience, including a film about the early days of Silicon Valley, a uh, film about the Hatfield-McCoy feud. We had a conversation about that. Construction of the Alaska Highway, which uh, I also remember uh, doing an interview about. And you may know them from other work that they have done, including Lorraine Hensbury, Sighted Eyes, Feeling Heart, uh, which has some relation to uh, Raisin in the Sun. And uh, other works include uh, Unnatural Causes, Is Inequality Making Us Sick? Again, their latest film for American Experience called American Oz, The True Wizard Behind the Curtain. Randall McLowry and Tracy Heather Strain, we welcome both of you to The Morning Show. Thank you. Thank you for having us. We're delighted to talk to you. I am uh, always, always enjoy talking to uh, documentarians. Uh, for all the things that I do in my life that I love doing, I... I I, there are very few people I envy <laughs> in terms of vocation, but I do envy documentarians because it just seems like the most fascinating kind of work. And, and especially when you have a, a, a beautiful work like this film that will live on after you and will make such a difference in the lives of so many people. So I'm really happy to talk with you. Ahead of us talking about the film specifically, I wonder if I could ask you about what it has been like for you over the last 12 months during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, there are a lot of people in terms of the work that they do in which that work is either ground to a halt or has been radically altered in terms of how that work is done. Maybe not so much with documentarians. I don't know. I would just be really interested to know uh, how your lives, your professional lives in terms of making films uh, ha has been affected by uh, the pandemic. Sure, and, and thanks for asking that question. It certainly, uh, it did make this project uh, quite different from other uh, films that we have produced in the past. Uh, we were actually just embarking on the production part of our production phase for the film um, back in March of 2020. And uh, with all of the 
know, swirling around information about the, the pandemic happening and what, how it may impact you know, things here in the States. We got through uh, the first week of our interview production, um, filming five interviews, and then everything shut down. So it was basically right in the middle of, um, you know, we had anticipated doing another full week of shooting. And, um, you know, the decision was made, you know, partly, also, you know, we, both Tracy and I also are professors at Wesleyan University and the university itself, you know, shut down and went uh, to virtual for the rest of the semester. Um, and um, the, uh, and we were in test, we were, you know, creating our schedule around our spring break at that time. And, and then there was basically, you know, figuring out how do we then continue to move forward and in conversations with the executives and, and the team of American Experience at uh, GBH Boston and really starting to, you know, research how the industry in itself was starting to try to deal with this. And uh, the industry obviously shut down as well. Um, and it was slowly trying to, you know, we had to figure out how to try to to do the interviews in a, in, a, in a way that was safe. And this really, and so we weren't able to actually start back into interview production for about three months, wow. um, at least. We didn't, uh, so middle of March, we stopped. We didn't start doing our next interviews, I think until maybe it was the end of June or maybe, or maybe it had been in July, I think. I think, I think it, was it, was, it was July. July, I yeah. think it was July. And even then we were still so nervous and yeah. we didn't want to make, we wanted to make sure everybody involved felt comfortable being, interviewed and we no longer went to anybody's home we had to find locations we had to set up you know sanitation and and protocols and uh we basically started shooting with just a crew a small crew either just a camera person who did sound um or a camera and sound person and then one other person to help sort of make sure the temperatures were taken and the you know all the, the details of sanitation sanitizing i mean and uh and we did the interviews remotely from middletown connecticut and so that was new to us and that was a very different experience and uh but we were delighted that um most of the people that we originally wanted to interview were available some people unfortunately could not could no longer do it for a variety of reasons which we totally respect and um um, but uh, yeah, we were grateful for everybody who, 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 who worked through this with us. Right. And, but in the, in the interview process, you know, took a couple months to actually get through all the rest of the interview. Typically we try to do things in a very, you know, condensed period of time. And it was just, it was just the logistic of it was much more difficult. And we were in fact filming as we were editing and continuing to edit, you know, so that was, which is not necessarily unusual, but you know, for the, the amount of uh, material we were constantly trying to, we knew we still had to get to try to fit into the edit was, was different than other projects. Right. I'm, I'm actually surprised to hear that anybody was, became unavailable because this film is wonderfully crowded. That is, I mean, that in the best sense of the word, you, you, you have a lot of people on hand uh, lending their voices and their perspectives to this story, which I really, really appreciate, including a grandson of Mr. Baum himself, but a, a, a plethora of writers who have, and historians as well, who all have very, very interesting things to say ab about this story. I wonder if you could help us understand, first of all, what you knew about Mr. Baum and his complicated story ahead of taking on this this project. I mean, how much of this was a, 
sort of voyage of discovery for the two of you? Or going into this, did you have some sense of at least some of the complexity that was part of this man and his legacy? Well, I knew nothing about Baum before going in. I'm one of those kids that grew up with a, a collection of the white books on my shelf. Um, and so I just knew of what I read from those books. And, uh, and then I um, carried them around with me until just actually a few years ago when I, I gave them to someone for their child. Um, so, so I had the whole series of Oz books right, on my shelf. Uh, so this was exciting to me to, to look into an, an, a creative life. I really enjoy exploring stories of people who create things. And, you, you know, as people who create things, we know typically the, those journeys aren't easy. And so they tend to be interesting. So that's where I started. So for me, I also didn't know anything about Bomb going into it. My knowledge of The Wonderful Wizard of Oz was actually just the movie. I wasn't, you know, I knew a book had been, it was based on a book, but I had never read the book or the series at that time. You know, so it was, it was a total immersion into the world of, of Bomb and also, you know, the world of The Wizard of Oz in terms of what was beyond and what was in the film. And, but when I did find out that, you know, he published the book in 1900, which actually was news to me. I immediately I had a sense that this person's life would be spanning a time that was very transformative in American history. And the fact that it came out in 1900, you know, um, made it very intriguing in terms of what the book was, what was being said in the book, you know, that would be reflective of that time. And so, but we did learn about, you know, Baum and his complexities, both in terms of sort of his own personal life and sort of the complicated things he was dealing with. Um, and, and also his, his, you know, the wonderful aspects of his personality and his the sense of uh, reinvention and imagination that really kind of defined who he was and really uh, placed him in a sense of a, in a, being, not only the story being quintessentially American, but also who he was, having these, you know, very um, foundational American qualities. Can you give us an idea of how the sort of general arc of this film took place. And I'm asking about this film specifically, I suppose, but in some ways I'm asking maybe a more general question uh, about the process by which uh, a, 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 an ambitious documentary film like American Oz gets put together. I mean, at the outset, what are the two of you doing? And then at, at what point does it become clear what kind of a story this is and how it needs to be told. Yeah, sure. So we start with research. We do secondary source research first, usually we, you know, that we read, try to read every book we can find on whatever topic. So every book that was written about um, L. Frank Baum and the wonderful Wizard of Oz, we try to gather in one way or another, um, you know, libraries, there's some libraries that don't have any, didn't have any Oz books on their shelves for a while, you know. Um, and then from those books, we locate primary sources. We, at the same time, we're looking not just from the books for primary sources, but we start scouring the country, if not the world, to find out, you know, where are papers, where are, where are different items to tell, to get the first person uh, information or as much as possible. And so we also had another producer working with us um, named Rebecca Taylor, and she was the kind of the lead research person uh, combing 
archives. She traveled to some before the pandemic uh, and started collecting materials. And so but all the time we're having meetings and discussions and in our office, when we used to go to our office, um, the film posse office, we had, we would write, we have the kind of walls you could write on and we would write down ideas of structure and, you know, we didn't know if it would work out or not, but um, we, you know, we just, we just kept kind of going through it. Does this work? Is this supported? Is this idea supported? And, uh, but we knew there was something to this, to this idea of somebody who knew early on that he wanted, he had something in him that he wanted to get out, you know, that kind of thing that sometimes people have when they're younger, you could see that he had that. And we, so we were constantly trying to figure out how to, how to present that story. And, and, and then I think the other challenge for us is because he dies before the movie, you know, is, is released. How do you make sure the film, the arc of the film doesn't die with him dying, you know, it, 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 so the rest of the film doesn't seem like an afterthought, you know, so that was another challenge for us. And, and the one thing I would speak to that I think we knew going in, it was that, you know, the, what was defining for so many people about The Wizard of Oz is the 1939 film. And that, you know, was really what I think has cemented it in the American popular culture, you know, more so than the book itself. I think, you know, that really is when you see references to The Wizard of Oz and The Man Behind the Curtain, you know, there's, it's, it's bringing, conjuring up ideas from the, from the 1939 film. And for me, I mean, I relate to what a couple of the interviewees say in the beginning about, you know, being stunned when they found out that it was in color also, because I grew up on a black, with a black and white TV um, and being, you know, terrified by the flying monkeys. Um, but it, there was, there was a, a lot of discussion about how to present, you know, both his life and the story, the film itself, because the film itself is, a, a creation that comes out of him. It's not his creation specifically, but it is what people recognize and connect to. And I think it's, and, and that is what I think. And so it was, it was a decision about how do we, and also the story in the book itself, because the visuals from the book, I think are, are which was this wonderful um, um, uh, discovery for me was how beautiful the imagery, the illustrations that are, you know, by, um, Denslow in the 1900 book that came out so that we knew we had a lot of visual to work with and we wanted to make sure you figure out how do you how do you weave those together you know if you wait and, and there was discussion do we actually just follow the, the chronological biography and really don't introduce the story of the Wizard of Oz until it actually happens in his life and we were playing around with that structure and then you know and we were also working and we were also experimenting with the structure of, of so what we ended up in the final film, which is sort of interweaving, you know, pieces of the story told both through the book and the film as the actual film progresses. And those touched upon themes and other aspects of his life and may not have been just, you know, more about the story that were not specifically chronological and connected to him. I think that was a really good choice. Of, I don't know, it's presumptuous of me to tell you you did a good job on something, but, but I really... As as just an ordinary person viewing the film, I really think that was great. That that the story of the Wizard of Oz is not addressed only one hour and forty minutes in or whatever, mm -hmm. but that right. it is it is artfully woven in as we experience certain chapters in Mr. Baum's life, at which would suggest a connection to certain elements in the story. Uh, that's that's really really 
a wonderful decision, I think, that, 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 that you both made. Um, it's, uh, we're glad to hear that. At one point, we tried it the other way, and it was so dull. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, yeah, it would be a lot of, of disappointing, uh, just a lot of disappointment, a lot of gray prairie, a lot of setbacks and so on. And, the, and in a sense, the, the joy and the life of the Wizard of Oz, uh, having that interspersed gives it, gives it a different kind of color and flavor. Um, before we dig into Mr. Baum's story, uh, 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 a final kind of preliminary question, you made the decision to start the film in what I think is a really interesting way. And it takes us right there to the film version, uh, which so many of us uh, know and love, uh, which I think we're told in your film is the most seen film of all time and the most repeatedly viewed film of all time. Uh, but anyway, your, your film begins with the movie version, but in a particular way. Explain to our listeners how your, how your documentary starts. Go ahead, Randy. You okay, can take sure. it. So, yeah, so the, the documentary starts with um, the first broadcast of The Wonderful Wizard of Oz on American television, um, which is November 3rd, 1956. And it was a seminal event, I think, both in terms of television and certainly for the uh, um, and also for the story itself. I mean, you had 45 million viewers across the country tuning in to the same station, the same film at the same time, which of course, you know, today that really doesn't happen if anybody tunes into their TVs at all, as opposed to, you know, their device or streaming something and, and so on. And so I think this is what was important because that was really the beginning, what really cemented the story in the American consciousness. So it was really kind of laying the groundwork for, you know, what people today understand about the Wizard of Oz and then you peel back away and like, and reveal that behind this was this man. And this man who actually was this incredible person who really was sort of lived a life of reinvention and creating his own um, future for himself, which, you know, is it's an American story. Um, you know, he did come from a, you know, a privileged background, but he certainly had his struggles and he had his, um, many failures before he was able to finally um, uh, land upon writing children's stories, which of course became very successful for him. And, and he became a very, you know, I mean, a voracious writer. I mean, he wrote a lot of work beyond The Wizard of Oz. We don't get into that in the film, but he was, you know, he was somebody who loved to write and he was able to finally make that work for him as a career and, and uh, um, so anyway, I kind of went beyond your question. So <laughs> oh, it's I'll leave it at that. Absolutely great. Uh, for those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with uh, Randall McLowry and Tracy Heather Strain about the film that they wrote, directed, and produced together, a film called American Oz, The True Wizard Behind the Curtain, which is airing this Monday night on Channel 10 in Milwaukee and on PBS stations across the country as part of the series American Experience. It explores the complicated life of L. Frank Baum, a complicated man. Uh, as you've just touched on, uh, Randall McClowry, uh, L. Frank Baum's life began in very uh, idyllic fashion. I mean, I think the film spells it out that it, his was an idyllic childhood as 
the son of loving, wealthy parents uh, who gave him all kinds of, of things that every child wants as part of their childhood. Uh, and yet he was not content to simply follow in his father's footsteps, but had other aspirations. I'm kind of curious, how do we know so much about L. Frank Baum on that really deeply personal level? Uh, is some of this uh, kind of educated guesswork or surmising from outward evidence that uh, of, of, of some of his hopes and dreams and aspirations, or, or does he leave behind him some kind of legacy that makes all of that very clear? Do you want me to take that, Tracy, or do you? Yeah, you can start. Sure. Go ahead. Well, I, you know, I mean, Baum, you know, as a writer, um, you know, his and he did leave his legacy of what he wrote. And most of that is fiction. And most of that is um, oftentimes, you know, uh, fiction for children, young adults. Um, in terms of personal writings, um, there's not a lot to, to rely on. I mean, he did do other, um, so there, there's, there's letters and so on that we do um, um, lean upon, at, but there's no journals and sort of that personal writing that we can kind of get inside his head to understand, you know, motivations in a very distinct way. But, you know, I think it is, there's, there's great evidence in terms of his sense of, from a young age, wanting to write and sort of being drawn into that world of imagination and the world of fairy tales. And he does write later in life about the importance of fairy tales, both, I think, about for himself, but also, I think, in general, for why he thinks they're important. And also his ideas about fairy tales and in the introduction of The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, he talks about how he wanted to create a modern fairy tale, one that wasn't about heartaches and, you know, nightmares, but was something that was more optimistic. Mm. Um, so I think there's those kinds of things that we're able to, to get. And he, you know, he, and he, we can just see through the kinds of work that he chooses to do, that it is focused on a sense of um, creativity. He, mm. You know, he wants to get involved with uh, raising chickens, but not just any kinds of chickens, but fancy fowl, you know, fancy poultry, which is part of a craze that was had on the time. And he writes about it and he has pamphlets that are very, you know, wonderfully written and poetic about sort of these, these birds that, um, and he comes quite well. And, and you sort of think about him, I think he does research because <laughs> he was, became very well versed in, in, in this topic and this subject. Um, then he gets involved with acting. He gets involved with not only performing, but he wants to write, he wants to produce, he wants to tell stories. Um, and but One of the things I was going to add, though, is that, um, you know, when we worked on the film about Lorraine Hansberry, we did have her diaries and journals and things and other papers and, and, and her ex-late husband, Robert Nemiroff, had people send in things. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> I remember the day when Rebecca Taylor called us, the other producer, to say that Unfortunately, she learned that Maud Baum had burned a lot of his papers or most of his papers. So we don't know what was in them. We don't know if there were, there would have been more um, material that would give us a, a direct idea of what he was thinking. And so in this film, we were very careful sort of to get back to your, your, your question in a specific way of not trying to say that Baum did this and this is exactly why the Wizard of Oz is this way, because right. we don't know what he was thinking for sure. And like Randy pointed out, these these are children's books. And so um, so we there are people who make a lot of have, have 
come up with schemes about or ideas about how the Wizard of Oz represents this or that. But we we tried to we stayed away from that because we don't feel we don't have anything to back that up, that right. thinking up. Yeah, and I do appreciate the fact that you you present what you present in in ways that that are are very very clear and and in a sense do not overstep the bounds. Uh, and, but I think you I think you are very persuasive in what you present about Mr. Baum and his life and his life choices, which really give us a sense of of what you, of, of 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 who he was and what made him tick. I think one of the most interesting chapters in the film is when you talk about uh, when this. Uh, elaborate and ambitious uh, touring company in which he is the star and the producer and the scenery designer and so on uh, goes on tour and then uh, things kind of fall apart and he has to come back home and gets a job from his dad in the, the, the family oil business. And the way he goes about selling uh, his father's axle grease really speaks to uh, the creative spirit that was within mm-hmm. him. Uh, tell our listeners just a little bit about what I'm talking about. Sure. So um, Frank Baum's father, Benjamin Baum, made his fortune um, in the oil fields of Pennsylvania and New York. So the first oil boom in America. And so he got in early and um, made a lot of money. And that's the main thing that really kind of built the, the wealth that uh, Frank Baum enjoyed as a child. And um, out of that work in the oil business, um, Frank's brother, older brother, who I think was actually a chemist, um, got involved with creating a new axle grease. And this was primarily used for things on wagons and horses and carts and things like that. And it was very necessary part of the American economy at that time in a rising industrial um, world. And so Frank, you know, comes back home and he gets this job and he basically his, his, his main job is he's the superintendent who's dealing with sales and he's doing both print ads and things like that, and you're actually going out on the road trying to sell it. But he really takes, he tries to find an inventive, humorous, and um, kind of has a hook to trying to uh, get people to want to check out this oil and, and, and buy this oil. It's very colorful ads that he has. And it has a little story to it about, you know, if uh, and he talks about in one where there's a, a bunch of, um, let's for a bit, lack of a better word, sort of rural kids and man in a kind of rundown cart racing past uh, this fancy sort of dandy, um, you know, with his horse and buggy and the kids are thumbing their nose at him and telling him, well, if you had bombs castorine, you'd, you'd be able to, to go faster in your cart. And so it's kind of like understanding, you know, kind of human nature and what things people would be interested or how they want, why they might choose to want to buy axle grease from bombs castorine. And um, which actually is a small note, it's not related to the family anymore, but Bombs Castorine is still a company that does exist. Wow. It's been sold, you know, back in the, you know, the 18, 1900s, uh, late 19th century, you know, but it did retain itself and it still is a, a company that is, is out there. Hmm. I think one of the really fascinating parts of this whole story is when you, in a sense, take us along with. Uh, L. Frank Baum and his wife and, and young children as they move themselves uh, out to the prairie, uh, specifically to Aberdeen, South Dakota, which was an amazing boom town at the time. And, uh, and, and, and the way that, that 
uh, L. Frank Baum goes about trying to make a difference in this community is is really quite extraordinary. Uh, can you just explain a little bit about what drew him to the prairie to want to live someplace sure. that at a glance would seem like the middle of nowhere? Sure. Well, you know, a lot of Americans, a lot of white Americans were looking to the, the West um, in terms of new lives and new identities. And, it, you know, it was presented as a place that was open and free to, to become whatever you wanted to become. And m many people from the Syracuse area were already out there in Aberdeen, including relatives. And so one, and during one of his sales trips, Frank stopped in to visit his brother-in-law. And I guess it seems to have gotten him thinking about it because he wrote him after he got back and said, you know, in your country, I think I can be somebody. And so the, he was drawn into it and, and they packed up and moved out to Aberdeen. One of the things I love about this story in terms of all that he did in, in Aberdeen uh, was the creation of this wonderful store, Baum's Bazaar. And um, uh, I'm so glad that you take the time that you do to describe this amazing place uh, and, and help us understand how amazing it was for this to be in Aberdeen, South Dakota, of all places. But uh, And at one point, I think in the film, the line is shared, the store is a stage. That is, this store opened by L. Frank Baum was, in a sense, a kind of store that also probably offers up kind of a window into his soul and into what was most important for him. Uh, tell our listeners about Baum's Bazaar. So, so Baum, Baum's Bazaar was basically a, um, a luxury store or a novelty store in the middle of the prairie. He was emulating, um, you know, the department stores who were rising in places like Chicago, um, you know, the Marshall Fields or a store he specifically references um, called the Fair. It had all these these items, these goods, and at that time, sort of the, the consumer culture was starting to rise in America, and you know the people were able to sort of create their identities some through through goods, which is very much a part of America today. And Baum, when he was out visiting his brother-in-law, he was looking around. He was thinking about what his future might be and if it, what it would be like in this place, and he basically put on his business person hat and well, this place has lots of dry goods, you know, feed stores and dry goods stores, but doesn't have something that would, you know, capture the imagination of this growing metropolis, which they believe would become the next Minneapolis or Kansas City or Chicago. And so he felt like this was a need, this was a niche that he could fill. And so he was very methodical and he had purchased a lot of goods and he got out there and within two weeks he opens up the store in this grand opening and promising every lady attending a box of chocolates from Chicago. And it really was this uh, place that was represented, I think, in terms of his own imagination, you know, his sense of, but also imbuing you know, these objects with sort of this value and this sense of bringing a sense of um, uniqueness to their lives by being able to purchase these things and bringing joy. And, and, and I think that was a lot of part of what he wanted to do. He wanted to make people happy in, in, in many different ways. And he thought this would help. And he thought also that this would be a way that he can make money and sustain his family, which at, up to that point was sort of in some ways, I think his, or it always, I think was, was kind of always weighing on him. 
you know, and certainly we talk about in the film that his, his mother-in-law was always worried that he would not be able to do that because of his, you know, he wasn't in, embarking into professions that necessarily would provide the support that uh, would maintain that uh, support for a family. Right. But in, in another way, it's a, it's, a, it's a fascinating story because on the one hand, he was methodical and he was... It, you know, he loved being there. He he told kids stories there. It was he he liked the idea of making it kind of a center of town. But on the other hand, we are in the midst of a, a it's a prairie town, and mostly farmers are surrounding. And and so, as as you know, in the film, the weather a drought comes. Who's going to buy fancy goods in a drought when when eating? is going to be the priority right so you you know he just happened to hit it a period of time where there there wasn't a drought right he wasn't thinking ahead about what do i do if bad times come Mm. i don't think that was necessarily how he thought right ever the optimist and it, it just i think your film comes as close as we can possibly come to understanding what this amazing store was like and uh, even though I'm sure no photographs exist of what it looked like inside, but I think you mm-hmm. do a wonderful job of kind of recreating the sense of wonder that one had to have sure. when you walked into the walked through the doors and experienced this. But as 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 you've already hinted at, uh, this awful drought, the worst that America had ever seen, uh, leads to the store f- having to to shut down, and Mr. Baum turns his attention to writing. One of the things you touch on in this chapter of the film is uh, that this is also a very turbulent period in terms of the displacement of Native Americans from their own land, and things become very tense and painful at certain points, and we're presented with the really unhappy reality of Mr. Baum having some of his own ideas about Native Americans uh, turning very dark and twisted. We'll leave it to our our listeners to experience it thoroughly in the film, but could you just say a word about what it was like to have to deal with this this kind of unhappy side of who L. Frank Baum was and and what you thought about in terms of trying to present this as fairly as you could? So I think, and this obviously, you know, I think is is part of what we, you know, in terms of thinking about him as a complicated person. Um, You know, he does have some very... um, hurtful and um, unfathomable words that he writes about Native Americans um, around the time of Wounded Knee, um, which was a very dark period in American history. And, you know, I, I think our approach is understanding the context of the times and understanding who he, where he comes from in terms of his own background and what was seen as, you know, his ideas about Native Americans was not unique. His idea about Native Americans was actually probably much more prevalent in terms of how um, society or white society um, viewed Native Americans and, you know, the ideas of extermination and, um, you know, his, he's looking at, in terms of how you sort of think about what his, what his choices were in terms of what he wrote. I mean, he, he wrote two editorials that were, um, uh, unspeakable in, in, in many respects. And so he, while he was echoing um, 
thoughts that were part of the American the American uh, ideology, or at least the white American ideology at the time. And these are obviously things that he, you know, bought into. And while he was in, in many ways progressive in his attitudes towards women and um, spoke about tolerance um, in his newspaper and how we saw America as a tolerant place, he, uh, you know, didn't associate that with Native Americans. Yeah, and we also we also see they, this is the American experience. You know, I mean, not literally because the the program, but this is who we are as Americans. And I think the sooner we all embrace the realities of who we are as an, a country, who we have been, we're never going to ever change. If we want to, you can't sit back with your head in the sand and deny that this person didn't say that or they didn't mean this. Uh, you know, oh, you're reading it wrong. That's that, that's not helpful, hmm. and we we can't um, we can't apologize for people. It's it's important to to say people are as you said complicated, and people are cultures of their time. But that doesn't like take them off the hook, you know. Because as Randy's pointed out, he was tolerant about some things, but then you know when economic interests hit or self interest hit. You know, sometimes that's when people show who who they are, at least aspects, certain aspects of who they are. So I think it was it wasn't like a hard decision or anything to um, uh, include. It would have been, I think, a terrible decision um, not to include it. I quite agree. I, I appreciate the, the frankness and honesty with with which you you'd address this. You also don't rush past it. You also don't, it, it seems to me at least, you don't unduly dwell on it. I mean, this is one part of who he was, uh, but it does not consume, in a sense, all of who, who he was. There were other things about him that, of more admirable characteristics, and I think you are completely fair uh, and open as you try to help us understand this man and his complications. We're speaking with Randall McClowry and Tracy Heather Strain about American Oz, The True Wizard Behind the Curtain, a fascinating documentary about uh, L. Frank Baum, which airs this Monday night on PBS stations across the country. Uh, so when things eventually kind of fall apart out on the prairie for Mr. Baum and his family, they resettle in the amazing city of Chicago. And I so appreciate the time that your film takes to describe Chicago at this point in time. And in particular, the amazing... Uh, Chicago World's Fair that opens in 1893. Uh, just briefly say a word about how this seems to have been a tremendous source of inspiration for L. Frank Baum when he, some years later, writes The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. Yes, so the World's Fair was an incredible uh, moment um, and certainly what it presented. I mean, it was, at the time, you know, it was, it was uh, probably one of the most visited and most talked about events, certainly in America, and if not the world at that time. And um, I'd have to go back, but you know, millions of people showed up for the opening, and it was, or a quarter of a million people showed up for the opening. I should double check my, I should know that off the top of my head, but I, I'd have to go back and look at the script to clarify my exact, the, the exact the number. Um, but it really was presenting, and I think what was really captivating for, for somebody like Bond was, this the imagination and and sort of the amazing um new inventions that were being 
presented there, things in the electricity building, you know, somebody like Thomas Edison, who was, you know, also called the Wizard of Menlo Park. Um, this was a transformative time in American history. Um, I mean, it was also a moment that was also trumpeting sort of the, the, the rise of America as a power, both in terms of within the United States, but also as a world power and sort of presenting sort of the, the rise of Western civilization. But I think, you know, for Baum, there was a sense of possibilities that were presented there, a sense of, you know, things to come in the future. And I think it really, you know, ignited his imagination to think about that. And, and you know, we do talk about that while we don't know for uh, definitively, but, you know, the, the World's Fair was, was known as the White City because it was these uh, beautiful neoclassical buildings that were all painted white and just sort of had this sort of glow to it. And the idea that there was this, almost this, the ideal city, this sort of uh, not necessarily utopia, but and 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 Oz, Emerald City, and Oz is seen as potentially as a as as an inspiration from what was presented at Chicago's World's Fair and, and the White City, and so those kinds of um, imagine senses of imagination of possibilities are the things that I think really grew Frank Baum into that moment and into that world, uh, into the World's Fair, and. I think it gave him it gave him that sense of, um, you know, reaching beyond sort of, you know, what your everyday world is, and to see things beyond that. Right, reaching beyond the ordinary, which right. of course he very much did. In a sense, though, when it came time to actually sit down and and do some writing and try to achieve success as a writer, your film tells us that it was in a sense for the most ordinary of reasons. That, that L. Frank Baum wanted this for himself and it had a lot to do with his family. It, ex explain to our listeners what I'm talking about. Yeah, well, by the time it, he was uh, writing, writing for children, he had four kids and he was on the road a lot and he would come home and tell them stories and uh, to entertain them, to be with them. And his mother-in-law, um, Matilda Jocelyn Gage, um, encouraged him to write those stories down. She was published and, and she, she had a sense that, you know, he could do something with these great stories that he was, he was spinning for his children. And it would be a way to did. not be on the road as a, as a, an exhausted right. traveling salesman. I, I mean, I just love that in a sense, it was for such a ordinary kind of reason that he ended up sitting down and, and doing this. And I, but I also think that the fact that he was out there traveling and seeing the country, you know, I think that there, that it, it provided him with, in essence, you know, grist for his, for his imagination and seeing these different people and seeing these different landscapes. And, and certainly he had, you know, the landscape of the prairie obviously informed the wonderful Wizard of Oz in the first chapter and, you know, the world of Kansas and sort of the, and the drought that he witnessed out on in Dakota, you know, was a, you know, was very directly um, an inspiration for the Kansas that Dorothy grew up in. Yeah. Um, oh, sorry. But I think it also sort of, we kind of imagine sort of the idea that when you're, you know, on a train and things are passing by, that's kind of like, it allows your imagination to sort of continue. We don't know that that's necessarily how he did, but it, the idea that he was in hotels and he would write, be writing things down on every little pieces of paper, he was just kind of constantly 
I think being bombarded with um, new places and new faces and, and you know, different experiences that then I think led him into things like with the wonderful Wizard of I, which was this creation of great different groups of people and different types of people. And Dorothy's journey is a world of discovery of different and, and encountering different people on her way trying to get back home, which of course, if you know, if you look at Frank Baum and his effort to want to get back home and to be at home, you can you know, see sort of connections between his life and, and what he does translate into that story. Yeah, I was just going to say, I was going to add about the train when you are just jumped in with that. It's like, we used to ride the train a lot. We used to live in Boston. We rode the Northeast Quarter trains a lot. And I've even ridden the trains out to the Midwest at times, like right after 9-11, when the planes were grounded, I actually took a train trip to out mm -hmm. in the Midwest. And, you know, it used to be before everyone had a laptop, you would sit there and you'd look out and you would think, and I remember getting a lot of work done and writing down on the train. I, I, I had, we imagined that that was the case before. And, mm. and so if you will notice that in the film, there's a lot of train. I mean, that was the a major way of transportation, of course, but there's something about that rhythm and, and the changing scenery. And I do recall that a few years ago, Amtrak had started a, a program, you know, so that people, writers could like, right across the country. You know, there's something about that movement and writing and thinking that we wanted to capture in this film. Well, you certainly did. And of course, with the publication of The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, L. Frank Baum uh, finally achieves the, the, the notable and sort of unique success that he had been so hungry for. And of course, there's a, a plethora of sequels as well as a stage musical version that opens in 1902. I'm so glad you tell us a little bit about that and even share a few snatches of music from that uh, uh, largely forgotten moment. But that is another way in which this uh, wonderful story sort of works its way into the hearts and lives of, of people all across the country. Uh, and of course, eventually uh, other ways in which uh, this world expands in such spectacular fashion. I think you've done a marvelous job of telling uh, a really complicated story. And L. Frank Baum's story, in a sense, is America's story as well. Uh, we are all a part of what he saw and experienced. The film, again, is titled American Oz, The True Wizard Behind the Curtain. It airs on PBS stations across the country this Monday evening, April 19th, including Channel 10 uh, in Milwaukee. And uh, this film written, directed, and produced by Randall McLowry and Tracy Heather Strain. My congrats to both of you for an absolutely wonderful film. And my thanks to you for being part of the morning show today. It was wonderful to talk with you. Thank you so much. We're so delighted you liked the film. And we hope your viewers love it as well. Thanks so much. It was a real pleasure to speak with you.